Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to Mile Hour Podcast, episode 245. And today we are covering a case that surprisingly doesn't have that much coverage. It is surprising because there is a Hollywood movie mm-hmm. on it. There is a movie with Jack Black, and it's excellent. I definitely recommend checking it out. I think it's just called Bernie, right? It is just called Bernie. That came out in 2011, the year we graduated high school. Mm. We must have been busy because I don't remember that coming Well, it was out. like an indie film, so I don't know how much. like it, it clearly doesn't have like a huge budget or anything, or the budget went towards the actors because there's yeah. a couple uh, A-list actors, actors in there, actors, including yeah. Matthew McConaughey and Shirley MacLaine. Very, very well done, though. Mm-hmm. It was so good. I'm so glad we finally watched it. So this case, like we said, hasn't been covered by many people, but is very, very interesting and controversial. It is. We're going to be talking about Bernie Tita and the murder of Marjorie Nugent. In the 2011 film Bernie, actor Jack Black plays a mortician convicted of murdering a millionaire widow who was found dead in a freezer. I, uh, I didn't know what to do. I got scared. Yeah. I don't know really how, how that felt, but it, it felt like that. He was so kind that maybe he had a problem letting out his anger when he had it. No more likely to commit a violent act than me or you or, or anybody else. Marjorie, you're making it very hard to be your friend. My grandmother didn't deserve to be killed. She didn't deserve to have all her money stolen from her. She didn't deserve to be shot four times in the back. She deserved a lot more than that. Do you think that 17 years that he served, do y'all think that he no. served? No. For no. I think this case is one that many of you are going to feel a certain type of way at the beginning and then at the end you might feel a different type of way because it's just there's something about bernie tita that is very likable and mm-hmm. he he's kind of the staple of the community and loved by everyone and then things go terribly terribly wrong and the whole public perception of him changes but there are still some people out there who stand by bernie I'd even say after like everything that happens the majority of people i kind of want to as well but i know it, it's hard to because huh? It's hard to excuse the actions. Of yeah, his, but yeah, it's. I think you guys will have very different opinions across the board here because, yeah, it's one of those where you just you're torn. You are torn. That's a good way to put it. It's a tough situation, but Bernie might be the most liked criminal out there. And it, and it doesn't help that Jack Black plays Bernie in the movie because <laughs> Jack Black's just such a yeah. His character is very likable in the movie. And Jack Black, just in general, I mean, who doesn't like Jack Black? Dude, so. he's the fucking best. So it's, uh, but this, this is a good one though. It's still a murder and a family has lost Absolutely. their loved one. Absolutely. So, you, can't you know, it's, it's tough. I mean, there's some elements here that kind of pull you in different directions, but we'll get into all of that. Let's not give too much away here. But this episode of the podcast is brought to you by PDS Debt, Aura, Stamps.com, and GameTime. And just a reminder, check out MileHarmers.com. We still have some items left from our last collection. And also, a great way to support the show for free is just making sure you're subscribed to us. Subscribe to us on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts. Just make sure you're following us there, subscribing to us there. It does really help us out. Here, there, Here, there, everywhere. But let's just go ahead and jump right into the story of Bernie Tita. So Bernhard Tita II 
went by Bernie throughout his life, so we'll be referencing him as Bernie throughout this episode. But he was born on August 2nd, 1958 in Tyler, Texas to his parents, Bernhardt Tita and Layla May Jester. Bernhardt Sr. was originally from Ukraine and was of German descent. He and his family immigrated to the United States in 1926 when Bernhardt Sr. was a child. Bernie had grown up in Texas and he spent the first few years of his life in Kilgore, where his father was the chairman of the Fine Arts Department at Kilgore Junior College. He had a younger sister who has chosen to remain anonymous. When Bernie was three, his parents got into a car accident that killed his mother, Layla. Bernhardt Sr. never forgave himself for his wife's death and he began drinking heavily. Bernhardt eventually remarried and moved the family to Abilene. When Bernie was 15, his father died. Now he needed to work to support him and his sister. So he got a job at a funeral home in Abilene doing yard work. And later he actually started helping with the funerals. But Bernie had a very lovable and friendly personality, despite all of those hard things that he went through. Bernie was popular in high school, and sometimes on Fridays, he'd take the hearse from the funeral home out on joy rides with friends. Joyriding in the hearse. Hell yeah. But all the tragedy in Bernie's life made him lonely, and his sister thinks that this created a deep calling within him to help those in need. That calling made the funeral business the perfect line of work for Bernie. And he also was a very religious man, so funeral work was a natural fit for him. After high school, Bernie attended McNeese State University in Lake Charles, Louisiana, and earned an associate's degree in mortuary science. From there, he started working at a local funeral home. Then in 1985, Bernie moved to Carthage, a small town in Panola County, East Texas, Carthage was a small town where everybody knew everybody and the neighbors were always ready to lend a helping hand. People in Carthage were conservative both politically and socially. Bernie got an apartment in Carthage behind the Hawthorne Funeral Home. He then got a job there as the assistant funeral director and he quickly endeared himself to the locals. Bernie was a fantastic mortician with an eye for detail. He was truly passionate about his work, believing he was giving people the proper send-off after their souls left this earth to be with the Lord. He was multi-talented. He was great at mortuary makeup and hair, as a salesman, at preaching, singing, and most importantly, comforting the families of the deceased. The movie really did such a good job of portraying this too, like him doing the tutorial of how much makeup to put on, trimming the nose yeah. hairs. I love that part, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's such a great movie. And then he's like leading the, the church choir mm -hmm. and stuff. It's just like, wow. This really is my story. <laughs> That's what it is. is <laughs> you were trying to song. remember it earlier. Yep. It's a bop, honestly. It was in my head all day yesterday. Yeah. Good old hymns, baby. Mm -hmm. Bernie taught Sunday school at the church, and when the reverend was out, sometimes Bernie preached the sermon. Some of the members believed Bernie was a better preacher than the minister himself. Bernie also had a great voice, and he loved the arts. He became a tenor soloist in the church choir, a chamber choir singer in Shreveport, and started working with the Panola College Music and Drama Department's and he had a love of show tunes and Broadway. Yeah. He was so knowledgeable about musicals that the college asked him to put on two of their musicals. Honestly, this dude was so set for the funeral business. He could do everything from he, the makeup to dealing with families. Um, this would get right up there and speak, would sing. He was like built for this life. Well, and that's what's interesting about him is that he had a very bright future in that business. He it's did. like, why not just like keep going that way and mm -hmm. potentially open your own funeral home one day and oh, just totally be like could've. the best in town? I mean, he probably would have done very, very well as I mean, like an actual funeral director. If I died and had a funeral, I would want Bernie 
to make me up, to sing my songs, whole night. Give yards. the sermon. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He's that good. And he was, he was really a really good, good salesman. Like, yes. well, remember that um, clip in the movie <clears throat> when they're, he's touring the different <laughs> coffins or whatever yeah. with that couple <laughs> and the older guy's like, yeah, I'm really tall and, but I was thinking about getting this one and he was like, well, just to let you know, that one doesn't fit someone who's 6'4 or whatever it is. He's like, so you might have to kind of like bend your legs and the wife was like, oh, no, no. And he was like, well, then might I suggest the... The Corinthian. The, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's she, what they, they called like, it. oh, yes, it was amazing. And But he like had that way of making everyone feel mm-hmm. like he really cared for them, which I think he really did. Yeah. Yeah, it wasn't just about money for him or anything like that. It was, no. just, it was actually about helping and comforting the families and... Mm-hmm. And but he had a way of like upselling people without like offending them or mm-hmm. making them feel uncomfortable. So he's a really good salesman. Yeah, and he was just all about the show too. Like really put on a performance during these funerals and wanted to make it enjoyable for people as much as possible. He also had an eye for design. He was on the Chamber of Commerce's Christmas decorating committee where he gave his advice on where lighting, wreaths and other decorations should be placed around the town. His reputation in the town, obviously, was great. Everyone knew him as a very kind and helpful person, and he'd help people with anything from sewing curtains to their tax returns. So he could really do it all. But Bernie was also a bioholic. According to his sister, he liked luxuries and fine things. But again, he was a caring person and wanted other people to experience nice things, too. So he would go to the store and buy multiple of the same thing. Things like chairs or cross pens or clocks. And then he would just give the extras away. He bought so many gifts for his friends in Carthage that the UPS truck would come by every day with new gifts from Bernie. But as you can imagine, all of this spending did not come without consequences. Bernie was frequently behind on credit card bills and he owed the IRS some $4,000 in back taxes. His annual salary with the funeral home was $18,000. So not enough to pay his bills. It's such a low amount, especially, I guess, the time and everything. But for how much he was doing, he was like... Severely underpaid. Yeah. I'm surprised there's not like more commission in the funeral business for him. Yeah. Well, this is the thing about Bernie, too, is that he's so nice that he's easy to take advantage of. Yeah. And so it doesn't surprise me that he'd be like underpaid because obviously you're going to you can save a bunch of money. Bernie's not going to say anything, but he's still going to do a good job mm-hmm. because it's not necessarily about how much money he's making, right? It's yeah. about making people's lives better. And so, uh, you know, it was a great trade-off for the people that employed him, that's for sure. Bernie was liked by pretty much everyone he met. He was talented and he wasn't bad-looking either, which made locals wonder why he was always single. His boss, the director at the funeral home, said there were plenty of women in town who would have loved to date him. Some of the men in town thought that Bernie was a little, quote-unquote, light in the loafers. Basically, they thought he was gay. I have never heard that phrase. Light in the loafers. loafers. That must be a Texas thing, because I've never heard that either. Light in the loafers. loafers. What does that even mean? I have no idea. (laughs) I'm going to assume it's probably not a nice way to describe someone. No, definitely not. Yeah. But Bernie was especially popular with the little old ladies of the town. There were a lot of older people in Carthage, and as the assistant funeral director, he'd meet a lot of those older people pretty much every day. Often, Bernie would pay visits to widows and widowers after the funerals of their spouses. He would bring small gifts and pay them a visit as a caring gesture to check in on them. 
wasn't getting paid extra for that. Just going to these people's houses, bringing them gifts, checking in on how they're doing. I mean, dude was committed to his job. In the weeks after their spouses died, Bernie would offer to pick up the widow's medications. Carthage was full of rich widows, many of whom Bernie came to know after attending to their husband's funerals. And they all loved him, but he helped all the widows, rich or poor, just the same. One widow in particular was Gracie Duke, the wife of a mechanic. And once she complained about an ache in her bones and Bernie felt so bad that he took her all the way to Hot Springs, Arkansas, so that she could soak in the baths there. Seriously committed. Now, by contrast, there was someone in the town whose reputation was far less favorable than Bernie's, and her name was Marjorie Nugent. And of all the rich widows in Carthage, Marjorie was the richest. But she was also considered to be the meanest lady in East Texas. Marjorie Ann, or Marge Midyet, was born on February 6th, 1916 in Panola County, Texas to her parents, Ella and Felix Spencer Spence Midyet. She had two younger sisters, Sue and Merrill, and she was 12 years older than Merrill, the youngest Midyet girl, and the family moved to Carthage around 1933. Her father, Spence, was a prominent local merchant and landowner, and for decades he owned a general store in Carthage, and he was well known as a local cattleman. Marjorie and her sisters grew up in Carthage. Some people said that Marjorie was mean, even as a kid. From an early age, Marjorie let her father's status in the community kind of get to her. She thought very highly of herself and sort of acted snotty. Her own sister, Meryl, was afraid of her from childhood. Meryl said that even their mother, Ella, was afraid of Marjorie. Later, Meryl and Marjorie had an ugly falling out over terms of their father's will. Marjorie attended Louisiana Tech, where she met Roderick or Ra Nugent. In 1937, they got married and Ra got a job with Magnolia Oil. That company later became Mobile. Marjorie and Rod moved around the South while Rod worked as a ruthless independent oilman, and he made a ton of money. She had one child, a son named Rod Nugent Jr., and the family settled in Midland, Texas for about a dozen years to raise Rod Jr. Merrill's son Joe remembers his Aunt Marge as not the nicest lady, and he has lots of stories to prove that point. Once Marge threatened to put Joe in a mental institution because he wouldn't cut his hair, Another time when Joe wouldn't clean out a wasp's nest with his bare hands, she chased him around the yard with garden shears. Once when Joe was 14, Marge locked him in her house for two days and wouldn't let him call home. He was finally able to escape after Marge went to the grocery store, and her maid felt sorry for him. She unlocked the bedroom door, and Joe immediately called his mom for help. Merrill rushed over to pick him up, and that was the last time that Joe ever went to Marge's place. Now, Marge always loved sewing and shopping, things like that but she didn't have a daughter of her own to do those things with. So get this. She tried to have Joe's parents, her sister and her husband, declared unfit parents. That way she could get custody of Joe's sister, Carrie. Marge even tried to say that Joe's dad was an alcoholic. And of course he rarely drank. So this wasn't true, but Marge tried saying that she could provide a more stable household. Joe's family had to get lawyers involved, but thankfully In that case, Marge did not get her way. Rod Jr., her son, had three girls, Jennifer, Alexandria, and Shanna, and they sometimes came by to visit Marjorie and Rod Sr. In 1989, Marjorie and her husband moved back to Carthage, and he had bought a controlling interest in a local bank. They had built a huge Austin Stone house on the outskirts of town, 
just off Dixie Lake Road. In Carthage, Marjorie quickly became an unpopular person. She would lord her money and status over people like a weapon. She acted as if she was too good for this town. One resident said if she had her nose any higher, she would have drowned in a rainstorm. That's how snooty she was. Marjorie didn't leave the house much, but that didn't stop her from becoming the subject of all the town gossip. She wasn't as mean as the gossip made her seem, but she didn't make much of an effort to be friendly to people. And in a small town, that is super important. For all the money she had, she didn't like to spend any in town. A local vet once quoted her a price of $45 to see her dog, but Marjorie thought even that price was high, and she got him to reduce his rates. When she came by the bank her husband had a stake in, she rarely talked to anyone. On March 22, 1990, Marjorie's husband died unexpectedly of heart failure. It had only been about a year since they moved back to Carthage. Like most other people in town who passed, Rod's services were held at Hawthorne Funeral Home. And that's how 74-year-old Marjorie met 32-year-old Bernie Tita. So, of course, for Rod's funeral, Bernie helped pick the casket, the headstone, the flowers, and he even sang a hymn at the funeral service. And he helped Marjorie to her car before they headed to the cemetery. And when Marjorie shivered... Bernie gave her his coat. It was the standard caring treatment that Bernie gave all other grieving widows, but he knew that Marjorie was different because she didn't have the best reputation in town. He felt bad for her. He could see at the funeral that she looked lonely. Only a handful of people had come by to express their condolences. And when her husband passed, he left her both all alone and with a fortune of five to $10 million. So to Bernie, it looked like she needed a friend. By all accounts, Marjorie didn't have any friends in town, so Bernie tried his best to help her. Like all other widows in town, Bernie would stop by her house with flowers, spa products, and other goods to help her as she grieved. And soon, Marjorie was inviting him in to chat and have lunch. And the two of them actually became unlikely friends, according to many. Bernie would leave carrying little notes around the house. He would take her out to lunch or to local theater productions. Marjorie really enjoyed Bernie's company. He made her smile and he made her feel young again. Bernie was great at conversation and he liked the same things Marjorie liked, such as arts and shopping, all of life's luxuries. Bernie spent his days off from the funeral home with Marjorie. By then, he was spending so much time with her that the other widows started to get jealous. And Marjorie definitely kept Bernie around with her wealth. She gave him her husband's $12,000 Rolex watch. Bernie eventually became Marjorie's travel companion, accompanying her on nice vacations to destinations all across the globe. Here's a clip of Bernie talking about things Marjorie gave him. She wanted to go out to eat, and I'd take her to go eat. We'd run to the Cherokee Club um, and different uh, places around town. We've been to Egypt. We've been to... Uh, uh, Hong Kong, we've been to Bangkok, Thailand, we've been to um, uh, Germany, Austria, Switzerland, Italy, France, and she um, gave me money. She gave me $3 million. Mm, not a bad deal. Yeah, I mean, you went to a ton of different places. Yeah. And a lot of places that aren't cheap to go to. No, definitely not. Especially so Marjorie like Switzerland. Was, yeah, and they would get like first class mm -hmm. plane tickets, they'd stay at five-star hotels. Mm-hmm. So he was, yeah, he was definitely enjoying the luxuries that Marjorie was paying for. Mm -hmm. On some of these trips, Marjorie and Bernie would sleep in the same room even. 
They'd also be seen in town holding hands, although Bernie stated this was because she wobbled when she walked. One local even claimed that he'd seen Bernie kiss Marjorie, and that it wasn't a kiss on the cheek that you'd give your mother. So as you can imagine, many people wondered if he was more than a friend to Marjorie. Some townspeople believed they were in some sort of sexual or romantic relationship. They thought Bernie was pursuing Marjorie, or maybe it was the other way around, that Marjorie was pursuing Bernie. But other people thought that maybe he was homosexual and that he was celibate since he was a very religious man in a conservative town. However, this ended up being true because Bernie did later confirm that he is gay. So Marjorie gave him power of attorney, she also wrote her only child, her son, Ron Nugent, out of her will and made Bernie the sole beneficiary. She said that she didn't want to give her family a single dime. In fact, she said, not one thin dime. That's cold, man. Yeah. And according to one of her cousins, Marjorie didn't want to leave any money to her son or her immediate family because they didn't appreciate her. However, her son was a very successful pathologist in Amarillo, and they hadn't spoken for years when she passed. She also wasn't speaking with her grandchildren, who actually sued her over some trust money that she wouldn't let them have. When you're getting sued by your own family members, yeah. that tells you something about, about mm -hmm. yourself. Mm -hmm. But Marjorie didn't care. No. She's just like... She didn't give a damn. She's like, if you are not going to serve me, then mm -hmm. cutting you out. Worship me. Yeah. Yeah. In 1993, Marjorie convinced Bernie to go from full-time to part-time at the funeral home so he could work full-time for her. Bernie essentially became her business manager, companion, and basically servant. But Marjorie paid very well, a lot more than that 18 grand at the funeral home and with much better perks like all that Lux travel. Bernie was able to get an advance from her, and he used the money to buy a two-bedroom house in Carthage. There, he decorated the yard with his penguin collection. He liked the way that they looked so well-dressed. In the hallway, Bernie set out his collection of around 70 watches. The house was decorated with porcelain penguins, polished furniture, and white curtains. Bernie threw a Christmas open house and invited all sorts of important folk in Carthage. He even earned his pilot's license and bought four planes. Bernie frequently called Marjorie's stockbroker, Lloyd Tiller, and gave him all sorts of recommendations as to what Marjorie's money should be invested in. And this stockbroker was very irritated by this. Once while he was on the phone with Bernie, he shouted, quote, what do you know about the stock market? You're nothing but an undertaker. Now, Marjorie did not like that one bit. She called Lloyd right back and told him very sternly that if he ever talked to Bernie like that again, she would find herself a new damn stockbroker. But she'd be missing out on a lot of commissions. From yeah, all the so stock. he's like, okay, I'm sorry. I'll yeah. be nice to Bernie. <laughs> so finally, Bernie was now living the life of his dreams. He was somebody. Life was good, but Marjorie was still unfortunately crotchety and mean. She was extremely possessive over Bernie's time, very controlling and just nasty to him a lot of the time. But don't get it twisted though. Bernie still clearly enjoyed spending Marjorie's money. And boy, did he. Again, Bernie was a bioholic who had a taste for the finer things in life. So he was always buying shit for people in Carthage with Marjorie's money, such as scholarships to Panola college students, which is pretty nice of him. A home for a struggling young couple. Again, very nice. And he also bought at least 10 cars for people who couldn't afford one. 
Bernie would tell them to pay him back when they could, which they didn't. A former co-worker wanted to make a clothing store, and Bernie actually funded it because he thought Carthage needed its own Neiman Marcus. The co-worker used the money to open Boots Scootin' Western Wear. 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 <laughs> Boots Scootin' Western Wear. Boots Scootin'. Love that. Also, a woman told Bernie that her trophy shop was failing, so Bernie bought it so that the local high school and youth sports teams could still get their trophies every year. He also pledged $100,000 to the new building campaign for First United Methodist Church. So you could say, like, obviously he enjoyed the benefits of having this money personally. You know, he got to travel mm -hmm. and things like that. But he really didn't spend a ton of money on himself. I mean, he did Still, spend on himself. He did spend on himself, but, but not as much as you would think. Others. Like, give... yeah. Like he was given $3 million, I think, right. as an advance. And, mm -hmm. and he wasn't selfish about it. Yeah, it's not like he went and got himself a big ranch or property and a big mm -hmm. house. He had like a pretty normal house and mm -hmm. he was still trying to help everybody else out. All in all, Bernie spent about $2 million of Marjorie's money. And Marjorie seemed to approve of how much Bernie was spending. After she passed, the money was going to be his after all. Bernie said that Marjorie did not want the money going to her family. She told him she wanted him to enjoy it. And that's why she let him do whatever he wanted with her bank accounts. Over and over, Bernie said Marjorie would repeat, not one thin dime, not one thin dime would go to her family. Speaking of church, Bernie even got Marjorie to go. She actually once hosted the women's Bible study at her house. So there were some positive changes happening in Marjorie's life. But the bad parts were getting worse, and she was becoming more and more grumpy and bad-tempered. Every day, Bernie needed to be at Marjorie's house for lunch by 11.45 a.m., and if he wasn't on time, she'd freak out and page him over and over again. And all of his other activities were interrupted by Marjorie's need to stay in contact. Bernie would often have to interrupt his visits with other people to call Marjorie. He said, quote, If I don't call her, she will give me living hell. She could be incredibly mean-spirited to him, and she demanded more and more of his time to the point where Bernie said, Working for Marjorie felt like being in jail. At one point, Marjorie asked Bernie to buy a 22 caliber rifle to shoot armadillos in her yard that were eating her plants. And Marjorie loved her plants. In fact, she actually fired one of her gardeners because the flowers didn't bloom in time. <laughs> that's uh, that's <laughs> Brutal. mean, man. And it was around this time that Bernie started to feel like she was developing mild dementia. His sister asked why he didn't just leave her if he was so fed up with her. But Bernie said that he couldn't because he was the only person that she had. He cared for her, and obviously the money certainly helped some. But regardless, Bernie became fed up with her personality and her demands. He thought that Marjorie's actions had become emotionally abusive, and it was driving him up the wall. He once fantasized about hitting her over the head with a baseball bat. But he didn't do that because he didn't want to see her suffer. She had just become so abusive that Bernie almost couldn't take it anymore. And that breaking point came on November 19th, 1996. So that morning around 7.30 a.m., Bernie headed to Marjorie's house to make the morning coffee. Bernie said that there was nothing particularly notable they planned on doing that day. They were getting ready to run some errands in Longview, but something happened that caused him to snap. Marjorie had been nagging him like she usually did. Now, Bernie says he doesn't quite know what happened, but what we do know is this. In the garage with Marjorie's back turned, 
Bernie grabbed that 22 caliber rifle that Marjorie had gotten to shoot armadillos, and then Bernie aimed it and shot Marjorie in the back. She immediately fell to the ground as the shot had paralyzed her. Bernie walked closer and shot her again. Then he walked up to her body, put the gun against her back, and shot her two more times. Bernie then proceeded to take her body and put it in the garage freezer. He cleaned up the blood in the garage and then continued to go on about his daily life. We actually have a clip of Bernie describing what happened that day. Uh, it got worse and worse, and she was becoming more possessive of my time, my energies. Uh, I felt like I was in prison. Uh, now I know what that feels like, uh, but it was really bad. I don't know exactly what caused that morning to happen. Uh, I called her and I said, uh, we're going to Longview. Uh, I, I'm going to run to take my, my clothes to the cleaners. Uh, would you like to ride with me? We'll go to Hunan's and eat some Chinese food. And she said, uh, yeah. And um, so I went out there to, to go and pick her up. And I don't know. It was just uh, she was starting nagging at me. It's about something. And I don't know really uh, um, how how that felt, but it, it felt like that because it was really, um, I got scared, you know, I got scared and um, I, I, I didn't know what to do. But the next day after all this happened, Bernie wrote himself a $20,000 check from Marjorie's account. He and Marjorie had upcoming travel arrangements, so he replaced her reservations with a friend. So for months, Marjorie's body just sat in that freezer. And in the meantime, Bernie canceled all her appointments and told others that she was seriously ill. And he told some people that she was visiting a sister in Ohio. Later, he said that Marjorie was recovering from a stroke in a nursing home. But he said that, for the most part, people didn't ask much about her whereabouts. And in the meantime, Bernie got to spending some, well, a lot, like half a million dollars, of her money and he gave the money to local causes like the church building fund or people who were just down on their luck and he also gave people money to buy things like jet skis and trucks but as time went on marjorie's absence became more and more noticeable her stockbroker noticed that she hadn't sent a thanksgiving turkey which was something that she always did plus she never answered any of his messages one of her granddaughters noticed that marjorie hadn't been answering her calls either her father, Rod Jr., sort of just brushed it off. He said that Marjorie was probably busy or maybe off on a vacation. In July of 1997, a woman in Carthage actually called the sheriff's department and told them that she was worried about Marjorie. She wanted to know if anyone had seen her recently. But the sheriff's department didn't do much. In fact, they didn't even look into Marjorie's whereabouts until a month after that call. They were able to track down Bernie in Vegas where he was singing at a student's wedding. Bernie told police that Marjorie was staying at a hospital under an assumed name and didn't want anyone contacting her. But the sheriff checked out the hospital and there was nobody who matched Marjorie's description there. So the sheriff called Rod Jr. On August 18, 1997, the police accompanied Rod Jr. and his daughter Alexandria to Marjorie's house for a welfare check. Nobody was home at the time. They searched all around the house, but nothing seemed out of place and they didn't find any sign of Marjorie. That is until they checked the garage. Alexandria thought it was weird that there was tape over the freezer. With an officer standing behind her, Alexandria opened the deep freeze, and what they saw absolutely shocked them. There was Marjorie's body sitting under boxes of chicken pot pies and wrapped in a Land's End sheet. And obviously, the police immediately started to look for Bernie. 
And when they found him, he was actually getting ready to take a little league team and their parents out for a team dinner. Bernie seemed surprised that the police were looking for him, but he agreed to come down to the station and answer their questions. And that's when he confessed to everything. Bernie admitted to detectives that he had shot Marjorie Nugent in the back those nine months prior. And he said he did it because she had gotten so possessive, controlling, and hateful. Bernie was arrested and charged with first-degree murder. The police didn't want to destroy any evidence, so they actually hauled away the entire deep freeze completely intact with Marjorie's body still inside. They had to hook it up to a generator during its transport to keep it cold, and it took two days for Marjorie's body to thaw out. Now, as you can imagine, locals were shocked by the news, but they weren't so shocked by the fact that Marjorie was murdered because most people thought she was, quote, a mean old bitch. But they were shocked by the revelation that Bernie had killed someone. Some people thought that Bernie didn't kill Marjorie because based on what they knew of him, the thought of him killing anyone was just unbelievable. Others thought that Bernie really did kill Marjorie, but they couldn't blame him one bit for doing it. When Marjorie's sister Sue found out she died, the first thing she said was, what a relief. And that's a quote. Oh, God. And the rest of the town actually stood by Bernie after he was arrested. A Carthage city councilman remarked, quote, from the day that deep freeze was opened, you haven't been able to find anyone in town saying, poor Mrs. Nugent. People here are saying, poor Bernie. That Sunday after Bernie was arrested, the reverend at the town's Methodist church preached a sermon he titled, quote, when life doesn't make sense. He told churchgoers, Bernie still needs our prayers. He needs to be with God and he needs to know that we are with him. It's so wild. They didn't say anything yeah, about Marjorie. Not bless poor Mrs. Nugent's soul. We hope she's in heaven. No, no, just support Bernie. Yep. The wild. T- yeah, it really is. The town stood by Bernie's side even after the sheriff went on the local radio show and announced that deputies had confiscated nearly 50 videotapes from Bernie's house. And some of these tapes showed men involved in illicit acts. Apparently, some of these tapes that they recovered actually featured some of the prominent men from Carthage in him. So, hmm. That was spicy for the town. Yeah. (laughs) Good God. Bernie consistently got visitors in jail that brought him fresh baked cakes and pies. A local woman told the Houston Chronicle, if I made a list of people I knew were going to heaven, Bernie would be first on the list. So was Marjorie's murder case cold and calculated? In Bernie's case, was it a crime of passion or a temporary bout of madness brought on by Marjorie's maddening behavior? So Bernie gave this explanation to his sister after he was arrested. He said, I started thinking about having to live with her for the rest of her life, and I just couldn't take it. I realized I couldn't stand it another day. Marjorie was old. She was 81 years old with a heart condition and a bad temper. If Bernie really wanted to get her money, he could have just waited until she died. Her estate would have been his, and all he had to do was wait a few years. He had already spent so much of her money anyway. It didn't sound like she had plans of cutting him off anytime soon. Her behavior had to have been so bad that Bernie decided in an instant that it was all too much. He could have smothered her with a pillow and there would have been no autopsy because nobody would have questioned a woman of her age and condition dying of natural causes in her home. That's if he had thought it out before he did it so he wouldn't get caught. There was also the fact that he left Marjorie in the garage freezer. 
Bernie was a mortician that took pride in his work and cared for others. He couldn't let Marge go without a proper funeral, even if she died by his own hand. Even if it meant that one day he'd get caught, which I'm assuming he had to have known he would have been caught eventually. Mm -hmm. Well, he said when they arrested him in another interview clip that I saw that it was a big relief. Like the guilt was really starting to get it to him after nine months. It's not like he had like a game plan for... You know, like say this went on undiscovered for a few years and then it's not like he could ever use the excuse she died from natural causes because she's in the freezer the entire time. Like eventually it was going to come to an end. Like true. He, he, you know, he didn't think of beyond that moment. It seemed like Mm. even though he kept on living life and spending money and kind of trying to go on as normal. But again, it's he like you just said, he was dealing with that guilt in the back of his mind of like Mm -hmm. I murdered her and she's in the freezer yeah in her garage so one local resident even said i don't understand why bernie didn't put her in one of those little airplanes and fly her over the gulf of mexico and kick her out oh my god one of marjorie's sisters also wondered why bernie kept her in the freezer she said that bernie told her that he couldn't be so cruel as to abandon her she was surprised by his response but bernie said that he wanted to give marjorie a proper burial so he's got like this He's still, even after killing somebody, he's still like sticking by his morals and, and ethics when it comes to being a, mm-hmm. you know, funeral director or mortician. Yeah, he was he was very conflicted during this time, clearly. Well, and I think part of it is also the fact that she was so lonely. So even though she's dead, I think that if he were to have, like I said, flew her over to Mexico, um, you know, then she'd be alone again. So at least, yeah, yeah she's in the freezer, but she's not alone. Yeah, like he still, like In part theory. of him still cared for her. Yeah, it seemed like In it. some weird way. But it's, she was alone though. She was alone in the freezer. It wasn't right. like no, Bernie true. was sitting beside the freezer day and night. But he still like knew where she was. I mean, who knows? Maybe he would like go and visit her. Yeah, maybe. When go he got the chicken her. pot pies out. <laughs> say a quick hello. Oh, no. oh my God. But I mean, I think a lot of it was the fact that he believed everyone should have a proper burial and he was all about respect for the dead. So even though he killed her, it was hard for him to imagine just disposing of her body. I mean, there's so many ways that we've seen people do that. And I think all those ideas were just so brutal that he didn't have a better option in his mind than to just keep her in the freezer and keep the lie going as long as he could. Well, and maybe in his mind, he was thinking... If I do go that route and I dispose of her in some way, then that might incriminate me even more and make it look even worse that not mm-hmm. only did I murder her, but then I went and disposed of her body. So that seems, you know, maybe he thought mm-hmm. the authorities and the yeah, public like the would perceive that as like, yeah, or just would perceive it as he's evil. Like he's actually this evil guy, mm-hmm. even though he's pretend, you know, pretending yeah. to be this religious man and, you know, great person in the community. So maybe it was something like that too. I really do think though, for the most part, it was he was conflicted because he wanted her to have a proper burial, proper send off, and he didn't know how to make that happen. So he just left her there for the time. Which goes back to, did he really think this through? Was this premeditated? Right, which we will discuss more. So Bernie was attacked in prison, but then quickly became popular in jail, just like he was popular in Carthage. And this posed an issue for the prosecutor. The prosecutor in this case was Danny Buck Davidson, which in the movie is played by Matthew McConaughey. He does such a good job, too. And Mr. Danny Buck asked the judge for a change of venue. 
He knew if Bernie's case was tried in Pinellas County, it'd be very difficult to secure a conviction from a local jury. And that's because the locals loved Bernie so much, almost as much as they hated Marjorie. In fact, after Bernie was charged, townspeople would literally come up to Danny Buck everywhere he went just to tell him what a good person Bernie was. For example, take one of Danny's visits to the local restaurant, Daddy Sam's Barbecue and Catfish, which the slogan was, you kill it, I cook it. Oh, I love that. I wish there was a place like that here. (laughs) Danny was sitting there sipping on his sweet tea when multiple people approached him to talk about Bernie. I like how the public's like, we're going to persuade Danny to (laughs) not convict Bernie. It's wild. I mean, you do not hear of cases like this very often. I don't think I've ever heard of anything like this. But a waitress told him that Bernie was a sweet man who did a lot of good things for Carthage, like paying for poor kids' college tuition. Another person added, you got to admit, nobody can sing Amazing Grace like Bernie could. And therefore, innocent. Amazing (laughs) Grace. You cannot sing. It was so funny. The other night, I walked Mm -hmm. into Holly's nursery and Josh was singing Amazing Grace to her. Mm -hmm. What part of the wrong words? Well, he only knows like three words. Actually, no, I know that I do know. That's the few songs I do know are old hymns, surprisingly. (laughs) (laughs) Amazing Grace. They're drilled in your brain. I got it. I can. I got you. Yeah. We've talked about this off camera, but Josh doesn't know the lyrics to like any song except for hymns. (laughs) Wonder why that is. It works. She was enjoying it. But anyway, Danny tried calmly informing them that Bernie had confessed to the murder. He came right out and told a Texas Ranger that he shot Miss Nugent four times in the back, then stuffed her in her own deep freeze in her kitchen. But the locals were not swayed. After a long silence, one man came up and said, Danny Buck, it's just hard for me to believe that old Bernie could fire a gun straight. He acts, well, you know, effeminate. You can tell he's never been deer hunting in his entire life. (laughs) That was going to be the defense in court. (laughs) There's no way he would have shot that (laughs) rifle straight. That's that's fucking wild. Really, I'm enjoying your guys' accents. Thank you. Yeah. This is how we talk at home, actually, to each other. (laughs) What? (laughs) No, it's not. (laughs) Another local woman took it even further. She straight up told Danny Buck, you know what? I don't care if Mrs. Nugent was the richest lady in town. She was so mean that even if Bernie did kill her, you won't be able to find anyone in town who's going to convict him for murder. It was the same thing at the grocery store. Women in town would come right up to Danny and tell him that they were praying he'd make the right decision when it came to Bernie. Danny took those comments seriously. By all accounts, if a jury of Bernie's peers in Carthage were to hear his case, they'd let him off. So Danny's request was granted, and the trial was held in San Augustine County, 50 miles from Carthage. Isn't that so interesting? I don't think I've ever personally heard of another case where someone was too nice and too well-liked to be tried in that area. Yeah. I mean, you hear it the but other the way worried, all the time. Yeah, that the DA's worried, mm-hmm. if we try him in this town, they're going to acquit him. Mm-hmm. You don't hear that. No. It's, I tried Googling it to like find a, I don't know, a statistic or another case of that. And even Google was like, what the fuck are you that bitch like yeah, people love a... murderer too much <laughs> yeah i literally was like must move statistics on people loving murderer of trial too much that they had to move it due to acquittal yeah it was like the fuck <laughs> this is definitely the first time i've heard of it let us know if you've heard of any other cases like this because i definitely have not
What's crazy is that a group of women in Carthage actually tried raising $1.5 million to pay for Bernie's bond. The DA responded by filing theft charges against Bernie, which raised his bond to $2.7 million. So finally, in 1999, the trial began. Jurors heard about Bernie and Marjorie's friendship, including the lavish lifestyle that he enjoyed while they were companions, which probably didn't endear himself to the jury, who lived comparably more tame lifestyles. Marjorie's grandkids, who were not on speaking terms with her when she died, seemed to quickly change their tune. They told the court that Marjorie was a loving, sweet woman. And they've also done several interviews where they say this as well and have been kind of poked at like, what, didn't you sue her though? How does that work? So after only 90 minutes of deliberations, the jury found Bernie Tita guilty of murder in the first degree. Two days later, Bernie was given a life sentence with the possibility of parole after 30 years. Now, Bernie has expressed a lot of remorse for killing Marjorie. He says that he regrets it every day and he'll regret it for the rest of his life. He said at night, Marjorie comes and talks to him in his sleep and he'll live with that for the rest of his life. Mrs. Marjorie Nugent was buried next to her husband in a small cemetery outside Carthage, Texas. Her son and her granddaughters have said that Marjorie was a nice lady, but other family members more or less confirmed that she was not a nice person. Joe Rhodes, Marjorie's nephew, wrote an article in the New York Times titled, How My Aunt Marge Ended Up in the Deep Freeze. It confirmed other stories of how Marjorie was an abusive person. But meanwhile, Bernie has spent his time in prison teaching, doing church-related activities, and in the prison craft shop, making needlepoint mementos for Carthage's recently departed. He also got his paralegal license. In 2011, a movie based on the murder of Marjorie Nugent titled Bernie was released. It was directed by Richard Linklater and starred Jack Black as Bernie, Shirley MacLaine as Marjorie, and Matthew McConaughey as Danny Buck. The film received critical acclaim, and it brought a lot of interest to Bernie's case. Which, by the way, if you've not seen this movie, you've got to check it out, especially after listening to this episode. Yeah, it is. So you can watch it on YouTube for free. We'll link it it below for you, because definitely watch it. You'll see how accurate it is. It's I mean, very it follows accurate. the story very, very well. And it's done in kind of a documentary style, so it almost feels like you're watching a doc on the case. The only thing is it leaves out, like, the last... Yes, it does leave big, out some big information. section of this. Yeah, yeah that's case. true. So then, in May of 2014, Bernie's appellate lawyers brought forth evidence that Bernie had been sexually abused as a child. Later that month, based on this evidence, DA Danny Buck agreed to give Bernie a lighter sentence. When Bernie was a child, he was molested by one of his uncles, Elmer Duquette. He said the abuse started when he was 12 years old and it continued on for years. And like so many other sexual abuse survivors, unfortunately, Bernie felt like he had to carry that secret with him for decades. But eventually, Bernie was encouraged to come forward about the abuse after he was approached by one of Elmer's victims, Todd Hine. When Todd was 12, Elmer asked his parents if he could do yard work for him, and they accepted, and that's when the abuse began. A psychiatrist testified that Bernie could have been in an associative episode when he shot Marjorie. He theorizes that Marjorie's abuse triggered memories of the abuse that Bernie suffered as a child, and it overwhelmed him to the point where he became disassociated. Bernie himself has said that he doesn't really know what happened when he shot Marjorie. However, Shannon Nugent is skeptical of this explanation since the abuse wasn't brought up during Bernie's first trial. She has doubts that Bernie was even sexually abused at all. 
She believes Bernie is a con artist who dragged her family's name through the mud. Visiting Judge Diane DeVosto of Tyler, Texas, ordered Bernie to be released from prison on a $10,000 bail. Some of the terms of his release included that he attend sexual abuse counseling and live in Director Richard Linklater's garage apartment. Bernie also had to maintain employment and notify the court whenever he moved. He was not allowed to own guns or to have contact with Marjorie's family. He also had to submit to weekly drug tests. We actually have a clip of some of the jurors from the 1999 trial reacting to Bernie's release. And how I come to find out about his release was from a movie plus uh, the news. I really was disappointed in it because uh, we served two weeks, two whole weeks of missing work and trying this case. And to know that he is to be released because of some evidence that didn't come up, um, I find that to be unfair. Rumors I've heard is because uh, he was abused or molested or, or whatever. I don't, uh, I don't think that it, even if it had been presented at trial, I don't think it would have warranted uh, any lesser punishment for the crime that he committed. Well, do you think that 17 years that he served, do y'all think that's him no. serving? No, for we gave season? him life, and that's what we Well, life was supposed to be 30 years, 30 years. in this case. Yeah. Right. right. And it was, uh, so he haven't even did. Bernie was set for a resentencing trial in 2015, and Bernie's defense hoped that the jury would change his sentence to time served and set him free. And so did both Richard Linklater and DA Danny Buck. In the meantime, Bernie started a whole new life. He joined the gay men's choir and became a member of a local church in Austin. And everyone at this church just fell in love with him, as you can imagine. Marjorie's granddaughters were not pleased. Not with the movie, not with Bernie's release. They felt like Bernie was conning everyone. The DA, the people of Carthage, and the public. Here's Shanna speaking out against the film and against Bernie. She had you know, real feelings. She had a family that loved her very much. My sister and my dad and our lawyer went down to Carthage and reported her as a missing person and with the sheriff broke into the, her house after that. And then my sister found the body. He's writing, he's writing check after check just to himself. To me, Bernie took advantage of an elderly woman in the weakest moment of her life. My grandmother didn't deserve to be killed. She didn't deserve to have all her money stolen from her. She didn't deserve to be shot four times in the back. Um, she deserved a lot more than that. He's a cold-blooded murderer. He's a thief and he's a con man. It glorifies this guy who shot an 80-year-old woman four times in the back. This is a travesty of justice. We're going to set this guy free and we're going to set this guy free on the streets of Austin. I think that's terrifying. I really do agree with her that no matter how mean Marjorie was, how disliked she was, that she didn't deserve to die. Agreed. No, nobody deserves to die no matter how mean you are. That's being mean mm -hmm. to people is not a crime. Mm -mm. Right. So she did obviously didn't deserve to die. No. So I, I totally get that. And I also understand how she feels about the movie, um, which is always difficult whenever movies are made on real life cases and things like that is mm -hmm. like is that helping bernie in the end which i'd say in some ways it is because it's it's pretty accurate to the portrayal of bernie and it's played by jack black he's very likable mm -hmm. and you know the whole i i wish i wish the movie would have went a little bit further yeah 
and showed this part of it too. Yeah, I, they, I do agree. They ended it on kind of this like, well, he goes to jail and you know, that's kind of the end of it. And mm -hmm. they I mean, don't really show the- Granted though, it came out in 2011. This didn't really happen until years later. That's true. So they can't really. Yeah. But that's but that. that's the problem with making a movie before the whole thing's said and done too. Well, they I mean they didn't. Know. I guess they thought that he was just going to be away. Mm -hmm. It's but it's interesting to me because the movie the way the movie plays is like Danny Buck is never supportive of Bernie. Yeah. But in reality, he ends up kind of being he, swayed. Yeah. He even gets towards supporting to Bernie. Bernie. Yeah. yeah. Which. I'm thinking that's probably because he's the DA. He wants to get reelected. He's been the DA probably for a while. So he's got to kind of play along with what the people of Carthage want. So maybe that's a motive for him to mm -hmm. sort of help Bernie because that's what the people of Carthage want. But I totally understand why the Nugent family would be very upset by that. I do think they held back a little bit in portraying her as too bad. Like they obviously she was, mean in the movie to some degree and it was similar to everyone's recollection of her from the town but i think they could have made her look a lot worse and i i think that was good that they kind of held back well it's like elderly people i mean look at any of our grandparents like as they get yeah, to that 80 true. plus but she was said to be mean since before she was too. born right I mean, right but how do you know it was what i'm saying is like you could look back at somebody's life and be like oh yeah they've been kind of mean their whole life but then once it cross 80 if things escalate it's likely yeah, due to dementia or something sure. like that so for it could sure. have gotten worse yeah what but it sounds like she was pretty nasty to most of her family her whole life i mean she let's not forget she literally tried to get someone's child taken away from them so that she could get custody right i mean that's that's pretty fucking brutal and she was which they left that out, out of the, the movie yeah, yeah cut yeah. everyone out of the will didn't want anyone to get a thin dime. I mean, I feel like they could have really gone hard on portraying her as this really horrible person in the movie, and they they held back to some degree, mm -hmm. which I thought was good. So at the resentencing hearings, the jury heard multiple witnesses testify about Marjorie and her relationship with Bernie. Joe Rhodes, Marjorie's nephew, testified about his aunt's abusive behavior towards him growing up. And his mother, Marjorie's sister, Merrill, also testified and she told the jury quote i always loved her like a sister actually even when she did ugly things and she did but she also said that she'd always been afraid of marjorie because she could never meet her demands a former business associate of rod seniors also testified about marjorie's spending he told the jury about a conversation he had with marjorie in the early 90s quote she told me very clearly that she intended to enjoy the rest of her life she said, I'll spend every dime of my money before I leave it to my family. The defense also brought up quotes from a speech given by Danny Buck about Marjorie. He wrote, her family was not looking for her, but they got real mad when they found Bernie had spent a bunch of money after her death, about $6 million worth. Shannon Nugent hit back and told the press that Danny's claims weren't true. She said the family had been trying to track Marjorie down. She repeated that Bernie was an evil monster who stole Marjorie's money in the last few years of her life. Here's a clip of Shanna's victim impact statement that she gave in court. I know you don't know me, but you ruined my childhood. And I know you don't care. You never cared. Condon are the most vicious criminals. <laughs> They're worse than someone who you 
for no reason or for $50. They care for our families, they care for our communities, their lives are pernicious. Your lives have been pernicious. But you, sir, are nothing to me. That she was a human being and she deserved so much more than you ever gave her. And you want to pretend that you ever cared or that you ever loved her. Stop the lying. Because, sir, I know. I know it's a lie. And I hope now everyone in this courtroom knows how many lies you've told, how many lies you've ruined. On April 22nd, 2016, after just four hours of deliberation, the 10 women and two men on the jury resentenced Bernie to 99 years to life in prison. A Texas Court of Appeals upheld the sentence in August of 2017. And today, Bernie Tita is incarcerated at the Texas Department of Criminal Justice in Kennedy, Texas. So that is the story of Bernie Tita and the murder of Marjorie Nugent. So to wrap things up, let's discuss a little bit about his sentencing because mm -hmm. there's obviously a lot of controversy on did he deserve life in prison or does he deserve a lesser sentence was this a premeditated murder or was this you know disassociation for him and he didn't really know what he was doing and it just all sort of un happened because something triggered him what do you think well, it's really tough because I really do think that he could have experienced disassociation. It really does seem that way, especially because his abuse is backed up by someone else as well, um, Todd Hine, that he went through it as well. And that's that's when things get really tricky because how do you measure... Because how many killers out there who have committed horrific murders have also been abused as a child or, right. you know, right. have had something happen to them that has led them down this dark path and you know in most of those cases we never think that that should be an excuse or have any impact on the sentence so it's tough because at the end of the day bernie killed someone whether she was mean or not he took her life took her from her family members whether you know you think they actually liked her or not it's still a murder and I, I struggled with that. I don't know if he should have gotten life in prison. I think that's a bit much. Do you think he planned this, though? Because mm. he did say that he had images in his head of him hitting her over the head with a baseball bat. Well, he didn't say he thought about doing it or actually planned on doing that. He had thoughts and images come up in his head because he was experiencing this. I mean, he, she was controlling to the point where... He, she would want him to come over every day at like 11.45 for lunch. And if he was late at all or anywhere else where he wasn't supposed to be in her mind, he, she would scream at him. And I think he had moments where he was like, oh, I just, I can't take this anymore. And he had been abused before. And when you've been in a, an abusive relationship or abusive situation in the past, it's sometimes hard to get out of another abusive situation in the future. And so I think he had these moments where he thought, I don't have another way out. And he was such a caring person that he really did feel bad for her. He felt like she had no friends. If he leaves her, she has no one. And he, I think he felt like the only way out of this is if she dies. But then at the same argument, he was getting hella cash from her. And I don't think he wanted that to end. But I mean, if it did end and he wasn't caught, he would have just gotten all her money. It's, yep. a, it's a very 
tough one to really give an opinion on. Well, he knew what he was signing up for. He knew right. that Marjorie was this way. Mm -hmm. He and knew that about her. So I, in my mind, Bernie knew exactly what he was getting himself into. And I think, I think if you look at the whole con man aspect, I, I don't know if I necessarily believe Bernie's like this malicious con man more. So he saw an opportunity to befriend Marjorie, gain access to more resources that would enable him to do more things for the community and for the greater good of, of everybody. Mm -hmm. I mean, again, he spent a lot of money on himself for sure. He wrote himself a ton of checks, but he did spend a lot of that money that he gave to himself on other people. And I don't so, think that was his thinking initially that he saw this opportunity. I think he realized it once he was getting into the situation because he would, you know, check on all the elderly widows in the area. Right. So why wouldn't he have done this sort of yeah. scheme to some other was, widow? Exactly. But when he was brought in as kind of a friend, she started treating him to things, which I think it, genuinely he just wanted to be her friend at first and he felt bad for her. But then the benefits were Well, good. that's the thing. That's, that's why... There, you know, there's a, I think it's a verse or a quote, money is the root of all evil. And you start looking mm -hmm. at it in this case and money does things to people. It, For sure. You know, the more money and the more access you get to it, the more, mm -hmm. you know, who's able to do all these things. And obviously as a human being, you got an ego. Mm -hmm. So Bernie's got a big ego. His ego is getting fed because he's getting all this praise and love from the community because of the resources he had access to via Marjorie. Right. So I, I think he did take advantage of her. I I, do I don't necessarily, again, like you were saying before, tons and tons of killers are abused as children. Does that help them get a lesser sentence? Absolutely not. That's never factored into into the equation. Oftentimes it's brought up in court. Very rarely is right, it actually factored. Right, but again, it doesn't end up getting factored because it's like there's no way to pr prove the connection there. There's just no way to prove in a court of law the connection mm -hmm. there, right? Mm -hmm. So... He did the crime. He's got to do the time. And I think that's that's only what's fair in this case is that yeah. he serves the sentence for murder. I mean, yeah. how fucked would our justice system be, which given it is already pretty fucked, but how much worse would it would be if we are just being like, well, this person was nice. They did this, right, this, and this. Matter. They donated money. Right. So like lesser sentence. We can't Everybody have that. would be doing that. All the serial killers would be like these great people on the outside. And that's the thing, too. I just covered a serial killer on Lights Out. The guy was known as the Candy Man. Mm -hmm. And he was like making candy for all the kids. He was he was like the neighborhood um dad, basically. And he was he, well liked until people. He was knew. well liked by everybody. And he but underneath the mask, he's this absolute monster. And it's like that's the hard part with Bernie is like uh, we don't know him personally. I like unless you know him personally and know him for a long period of time, it's hard to know whether or not it's all an act or this is truly who he is. And this is like an honest mistake that happened. Mm -hmm. Or if this is just kind of how he's gone through life and gotten to where he's at is he's kind of manipulated people by yeah. uh, using his personality. And obviously in a small town like Carthage, Texas, you have somebody like Bernie, he's going to be kind of this unique individual in the community. And he's, he's, you know, right. playing to all of these things that the community likes. So obviously he's going to be, it's going to help boost him in every way. And right. I think it was all kind of going to his head and he was wanting more and more, but you know, he wasn't wanting to wait it out. Cause that's the thing is like, why not just wait it out? Why not just deal with it? She's 81 years old. Mm -hmm. She's, you know, entering the very end of her life. 
why jump the gun here and murder Literally. her? Well, I think that plays into the whole idea that this was a spur of the moment, yeah. not premeditated thing. I think he snapped. And going through the abuse that he did, I think it is quite possible that he did have a dissociative moment and just did it, you know? But that dissociative moment doesn't no, it gets you off of definitely doing not. the you know, murdering somebody. I'm just trying to explain. I think everybody in some happened. element, when you murder somebody, is having a disassociative moment. Mm -hmm. You hear anybody who's ever murdered somebody for the first time, they are absolutely like having an out of body experience. A lot of they're, people, they're, yeah. they're they're like, whoa, that I, that wasn't even me. I was above, you know, above the whole situation. But should it really matter? Right, it doesn't matter. At but the it, end of the it day. is hard because. I mean, and, you know, the whole argument of could he have just left? He says he felt like he couldn't. He felt he bad for her. Right. He could he have wasn't left. Like, it wasn't like they had a, a contract and he was locked in and he she would have lost a lot of money. Reputation. Right. And that's what that's the th whole thing here is he was a major mm -hmm. benefactor of all this money. Mm -hmm. And what, that's what's just so crazy to me is like he was already the beneficiary, sole beneficiary of her estate. So why, you know, why jump it? Why do what he did? Why not just I think he snapped. take a break and I think step he snapped back? and didn't think it through. Yeah, I think that if he, you know, had thought it through or maybe in hindsight, he was probably like, eh, I should have just waited it out. You know, she oh, was already sure. old. Right. She's going to die probably, you know, in the near future. Um, but he, I don't think he... Yeah, like you were saying, was thinking through this at all and just had a moment of whatever and killed her. Mm -hmm. I think if he really was thinking it out and this was premeditated, he would have come up with a plan to make it look like she just died of natural causes. I, I think agree. that even plays more into the idea that this was not planned in any way, that he, he truly snapped. Yeah. But So in that case, is that first degree murder then? I personally don't think it was first degree murder premeditated. Like, I don't think so. What do you think it is? Not first degree murder. Nice. No, I see what you're saying. <laughs> what do you think a proper sentence would be for something like this in your mind? I mean, I don't think there's any right answer per yeah, se. Yeah, that's my thing is like, I don't even, I hate thinking of being the person that is going, that's why I would never be on a jury is because I just, the thought of being the one that's deciding what's happening to people really freaks me out mm -hmm. giving you know deciding their fate but i don't think i think he was probably sentenced a, a, a too high in my opinion too I, don't I don't know what about you i have a hard time saying that i can kind of see it both ways yeah i agree i can see it both ways and if this was someone who was well loved and had this huge family and a great member of the community we'd probably be saying oh yeah he deserved this so it is really hard but for me it does feel like maybe a life sentence is too harsh but i get yeah. what the jury was saying how frustrating it was that the abuse claims weren't brought up originally and that well his I sentence think, the first go around was better than the second time mm -hmm. because he had 30 years before the possibility of parole but he did have the possibility of parole there yeah now he doesn't so have that. in my mind the first sentence was actually the better deal I because agree. I think 30 years for this is, uh, I think that's an adequate sentence. And I would then, agree with that. And mm -hmm. then 30 years comes around, he applies for parole, and I think at that point he probably would have gotten, you know, 
out on parole. I agree. And then, you know, that's a long, that's, that's a good amount of time for this situation, I think. And it also doesn't take his life completely away from him. But because mm -hmm. he was released and they were pissed that he was released, the jury the second time around was like, even worse, 99 to life. So now he's mm -hmm. basically going to die in prison. Yeah. Whereas before he likely would have gotten out at some point later in life. Yeah. So I think be, the first sentence was the right sentence. I really do. And if the abuse claims and evidence had been brought into the first trial, perhaps that may have even been even lesser, maybe have been 20 years mm -hmm. before a possibility of parole or something like that. And I mean, so, it's hard to say, but I do think even with the abuse claims, which is horrific. And I think, you know, it's hard. Should be factored in. Should it? I don't know. But I do think that that original sentence was the best sentence. So now he's uh, got a even bigger battle ahead of himself to try and reduce that that new sentence because that's a yeah it's gonna be really tough. Mm -hmm. So I mean, ultimately, he murdered somebody in cold blood, and I don't think you can really explain that away, no matter how good of a person you may be in the community and how many people love you and all those sort of things. I think it ultimately comes down to the action, what you did, and punishment that that goes along with it so we want to know your thoughts on this one though for sure let us know in the comments if you're watching on youtube if you're watching on spotify or listening elsewhere mm -hmm. uh come over to youtube we're actually doing these uh premieres over there which has been pretty yeah. fun yeah we're still trying to get on a consistent upload time it, it's sometimes hard especially when our episodes are longer and it takes our editor longer um but we are our goal is get 12 like a, p.m MST. Yes, yes. And I've been trying to join in on the chat for the premieres and it's been really fun chatting with you guys. Yeah, I actually was on this morning on talking to you guys earlier today this for, afternoon. Yeah. 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 So check us out over there on YouTube. But but yeah, I really I do really want to know what you think the appropriate sentence for this particular case would be in your mind. And just your overall thoughts on the case and, yeah. and Bernie Tita. Yeah, we love hearing from our mile higher homies. But that is it for us today. We'll be back next week with another episode. And until then, keep on taking your mind a mile higher. We'll see you next time.